James chapter number 5, verses 7 through 12. You can let me know you have it by saying amen. And the scripture declares, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the yearly and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and my sisters, do not swear either by an oath or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." Uh, this morning, I want to share from the, the sermon title, The University of Adversity. The University of Adversity. Let me pray for us. Father, it is always exciting um, to, to travel into your word. God, I pray that we would take a journey from what is happening today back into the text. God, let us see very clearly the truth that is being presented here. And God, let us see how the things that were shared in this passage are relevant and profound in their impact in terms of how we can live our lives today. God, I thank you that your word is living and active. God, I thank you that your word is able to speak directly to our hearts. God, I thank you that this morning is really an opportunity for us to hear from you, not from Thomas, but from you. God, so I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead me and guide me, that you would empower me to preach, that you would empower me to share your word. God, you would give illumination and understanding. And God, help us to not be the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've been super blessed um, to be able to be in a lot of different school settings. And since I have been in a lot of different school settings, I have come to understand that there is a significant difference between taking a class versus auditing a class. When you audit a class, you are making a decision to benefit from the information without the burden of doing the work. When you audit a class, you, have to take, you don't have to take the test. When you audit the class, you don't have to write the papers. When you are auditing a class, you don't even have to show up for class if you don't want to. But the truth of the matter is, when you are auditing the class, you simply, um, you simply get the information, but you never receive the credit. You never receive the credit because you never have to put in the work that is connected to the degree. When I think about the reality of auditing a, auditing a class versus taking a class for credit, it really is a reminder to me of how many of us desire to approach the Christian life. If we are honest, we want to operate in our life with Christ just like some folks operate when they are auditing a class. We want to audit the Christian life. We want the good information. Uh, we want the good facts about our faith. 
We want the parts that are helpful. We want the parts that are beneficial. But on a, on a very real and honest level, we have no desire for change. We have no desire for application. We have no desire to take the test. We don't want to stay up late. We don't want to write the papers. We want to spend our time benefiting from it without being committed to it. When I think about it, it is a, it is a reminder of our passage today. And that's why I love our passage today, because it is a reminder to me that there are moments in life where God enrolls us into what we consider, or what, what I want to consider, the university of adversity, because God wants you to get a degree in the, in the, in the area of patience. God wants to bless you with a degree in the area of patience because as a Christian, as a believer, you and I are going to need patience to be able to endure in the midst of the Christian life. When we look at the text there, the passage gives us three specific encouragements while we are enrolled in the university. And the first thing we see is we are encouraged to wait on the Lord. Verse 7 says, be patient Therefore, my brothers or my sisters, until the coming of the Lord. As we begin our study this morning, we need, uh, we would do well to be reminded that the epistle of James is addressing a group of Christians uh, that were suffering, a group of Christians that were going through a hard time. And what James says to the group of Christians who are suffering and who are going through a hard time is, he says, please, my brothers or my sisters, be patient. He doesn't put the suffering on a timetable. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't allow them to have a pity party. But James says very clearly, my brothers and my sisters, when you are going through trials and tribulations in your life, the best thing that you can do is to be patient. It's the great truth that they had placed their faith in Christ. And in return, Christ placed them in a great storm in their lives. Why not to hurt them? Not to hinder them, but ultimately God placed them in the midst of that storm to bless them and to help them. I know we don't want to hear that, but when we read the gospel narrative, the Lord would often send his followers into a smaller storm to protect them from a greater storm. Is that not true in Matthew 14? Immediately after Jesus uh, does the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Around verse 22, uh, Jesus uh, says, or the text tells us that Jesus made them get into the boat to depart. Jesus is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, which means he knew that the winds would get rough. He knew uh, that the waves would get high, but he still demanded that the disciples get into the boat and that they endure the storm. If you go back and reread Matthew, you will see very clearly that Jesus made them get into the boat because Jesus wanted to protect them from a temptation that they were not ready to face. So to protect them, so to bless them, so to keep them from falling, the scriptures tell us that Jesus gave them a divine appointment with the storm. I think we all need to hear that this morning. Just because you are going through a rough season in your life, or just because you are going through a storm in your life does not mean that you have done anything wrong. It does not mean that you've sinned. It does not mean that God is punishing you. I want to submit to you this morning that maybe, just maybe, the Lord is protecting you from a greater storm that could be headed into your life. 
That is who our passage is addressing this morning. James began his epistle in chapter number one by addressing a group of people who were in desperate need of encouragement. And I love it because he ends the epistle the same exact way by encouraging a group of people who were struggling in their faith. I love this truth because James does not feel any, any pressure to say something new. Uh, as a pastor, I can certainly identify with the temptation that, you know, we come here every week and it's like, I want to say something new. I want to say something fresh. I want to say something cutting edge. But if I were to do that, that puts me in a position where I am potentially not being faithful to the scriptures. James takes the time to remind the people that they needed to go and review what God had already told them. James does not offer anything new. He says, my brothers and my sisters, you need to go back and review. When we find ourselves going through the season of suffering or going through a hard time, naturally, we want to hear something new. Uh, we don't want to hear what God has already said. We want God to change our circumstances and situations. A lot of times in life, uh, we want uh, the magic bullet um, to, to deliver us from our current troubles. I mean, how many students can, can identify with um, being a little lax throughout the semester and getting to the end and you're at finals. You want that magic bullet to get you to pass that class. How many of us have, have uh, been a little loose with our spending? Maybe you've been eating out a little too much. Maybe you bought that, uh, that new video game. Maybe you've done something uh, loose with your finances and then one of those significant bills comes. One of them bills that you can't ignore comes. And you want that magic bullet to kind of get you out of the financial crisis, right? Uh, how many of us have gone um, or getting ready to go to the doctor for that annual checkup? We know we've been eating bad. <laughs> we, know we, we know that we've been eating fried chicken and, and sweets and we've been doing everything wrong. And, and we know vacation is coming up and we need to get ready for the, for the, for the swimsuit photo. And we just know we have not been doing right and we just want to get the magic bullet. I, I remember when I was in college, true story, there was, a, there was this infomercial with this, this, this band um, that, you could, that you could put on yourself that would help you get a six-pack, right? <laughs> and um, literally, it, 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 it was connected with some electricity, and it would kind of shock your abs. <laughs> and every time it would shock your abs, people nodding because y'all remember. <laughs> some of y'all probably bought it. Some of y'all probably bought it, right? And, and I remember being in college and all the girls were ordering it and they thought they were going to have a six pack and they thought they were going to be ready. But guess what? They wasted their money. <laughs> there is no magic bullet. And the same thing can happen in our Christian life. We want to just kind of pop a pill or say a little prayer and we want to have an a, a immediate, um, immediate exit from our trials and our tribulations, but that is not how it works in the Christian life. In James 5, verses 7 and 8, and also verse 10, the word for patience is used a couple different ways. One, it's used as long-tempered. The words endure and patience in James 5.11, though, say uh, they communicate to remain under pressure. It speaks to endurance. It speaks to being under great stress. Patience in context means to stay put and fast when you like to run away. I'm going to say that again. To be patient means you stay put and you stand fast when you have a desire to run away. I mean, how many of us this morning can be honest? 
that many times in life, we just want to run away. When I'm catching hell on my job, some days it's easier for me to think, it's just easier for me to run away. Even some of us have struggled in our marriages. And some of us have concluded that the marriage is too tough, the person that I married is too difficult, and we have a desire to just run away. A lot of us need to understand that God encourages us. Rather than running away, we are encouraged, we are encouraged to patiently wait. Rather than giving up hope, we are encouraged to place our hope in Christ. Rather than running away from hard times, we should be willing to pursue them. Patience means, once again, to stay put and stand fast when you'd like to run away. Uh, many Greek scholars have concluded that the, this idea is long-suffering, and it refers to patience with respect to persons, while endurance refers to patience with respect to the conditions of the situations. When we read the text, the, the natural question is, well, what are we waiting on? Or what are we waiting for? And when you go back and reread the text, you see that James is reminding us or addressing the issue of the second coming of Christ. When speaking about waiting, we are certainly waiting on deliverance from the trial, but more importantly, we are waiting on God to for God to complete the process of restoring the world and reconciling the world back to himself. When we think about it from that context, we are saying that we believe that the world as we know it is not how God intended it. And because God loves us and because God cares for us and because God certainly has a plan for us, God is going to make what is wrong right. And when God returns, the, the pain, the suffering, the sin, the wickedness that we experience every day will be no more because God will bring the new heaven and the new earth into fruition. So when you look at the text, James is inviting us to have a mindset. He's giving us an invitation to focus on the imminent return of Christ. When I use the word imminent, we're communicating that we believe that the return of Christ could, could occur at any moment. We want to live in such a way that we are mindful of the fact that Christ is not just coming back again, but, could, but Christ could come back at this very moment today. Here's how, how James looks at it. He says that the, the, the return of Christ is so imminent that he saw Christ as the judge who was standing at the door. Uh, anybody ever been watching something that you shouldn't have been watching or listening to something that you shouldn't have been listening to or saying something that you shouldn't have been saying and all of a sudden it's as if your parent appeared in the room <laughs> and immediately you try to get it together because you understand the, the accountability that's in the room. Essentially what James is communicating is he's saying that we should live in such a way that we understand that Christ and his return is imminent. Uh, I hadn't read a poem in a while. I want to read a poem today for Andy Johnston. The poem says, Christ is coming. Let creation from her groans and travail cease. Let the glorious proclamation hope restore and faith increase. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Come thou blessed Prince of Peace. Long thou exiles have been pinning far from east and home in thee. But in heavenly vesture shining, they their loving Lord shall see. Christ is coming, Christ is coming. Haste the joyful jubilee. 
our mindset should be one where we are excited and celebrating the fact that Christ is coming back again. One of the passages that we often go to is 1 Thessalonians 4. It's on the screen. It says, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that they may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's why we are to live in light of Christ's return. When we live in, in light of Christ's return, it changes our attitude. It lets us know that we don't have time to waste. When we live in light of Christ's return, it changes my outlook on life. And when we live in light of Christ's return, it changes the expectations of my life. So first, we are encouraged to wait. But secondly, and I love it, we are also encouraged to work. First wait, then work. The B portion of verse 7 says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the yearly and the latter rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When you hear the word, or when we hear the word wait, subconsciously, I believe we think that there is no way we are willing to do, we are able to do some work. Like, while I wait, how in the world can I work? It almost seems like a contradiction. I mean, if, if God wants me to wait, then surely there's no opportunity for me to do anything in terms of work. Like, if I'm patiently waiting on the Lord, how can I work hard for the Lord? I love the passage because James reminds us of the example of the farmer. Verse 7 says, see how the farmer waits and is patient. If you understand anything about farming, you have to understand that a farmer has to be patient and if you are a farmer, you have to wait on the seed that is sown to reap the crop that is desired. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Does it mean to, we, we have catchy phrases like, uh, we just need to let go and let God. What does that really mean? Sometimes we can think that, you know, the passage is communicating that we need to just twiddle our thumbs and take a vacation. I love the passage because a patient farmer it's not a farmer who doesn't work. If the farmer just says, I'm going to let go and let God, and he says, I'm not going to till the ground and sow the seed, there will never be a crop. A good farmer knows what they can do, but a good farmer also knows what they can't do. A good farmer can prepare the ground. A good farmer can sow the seed. And a good farmer can till the ground, but he cannot produce the rain. If God does not supply the rain, then preparing the ground and sowing the seed is pointless. It's a waste of time. On the other side, if God sends the rain, but the farmer does not prepare the ground and the farmer does not sow the seed, then the rain is wasted. When you look at it, God is saying, while you are waiting patiently, there is still work for you to do. 
God is saying that you and I are called to, to still till the ground while we're living. If you are here this morning, please understand this. Being patient does not mean that you are called to a passive, uh, uncommitted kind of life. Even though we are in the midst of trials and hard times, we've got to ask ourselves, how can I do what God is expecting me to do even though I find myself in the midst of a trial? Uh, here's a practical example. Uh, i got to ask myself, in my marriage, am I doing what God expects me to do? Am I loving my wife? Am I serving my wife? Am I leading my wife spiritually? Am I touching her body alone or am I trying to touch her heart as well? A wife should ask the question, am I respecting my husband? Am I loving my husband? Am I supporting my husband? In my career, I should ask the question, am I doing what God expects me to do? Am I willing to be excellent on my job? Or do I just do enough to just get by? Or am I doing something unto the Lord? On my job, do they expect me to show up late? Do they expect me to be unprofessional? Do they expect me to be on the internet all day? Do they expect me to waste time? Or, do they, or they, can they expect and count on the fact that I'm going to be excellent with everything that I do? With my children, I've got to ask myself, why God has given me these four children, I've got to ask myself, am I modeling what it means to walk with God for my kids? Do my kids see me pursuing God or do my kids see me pursuing sin? I've got to ask myself these questions. Uh, even this week, I was, I was totally reminded that even as a parent, more is caught than taught. I mean, most of you guys know I've been trying to lose a little weight. I've been exercising more. Um, and, and Avita sent me a video this week, true story, of, of my daughter um, in, the, in the office doing squats. She was just working out. True story. Like, she didn't wake up one day and just say, hey, I want to do some squats. She saw daddy doing squats. She saw mommy doing squats. So she concluded that she needed to do squats too. <laughs> Seriously. Like, in our lives, our children, and I know everybody doesn't have kids in here, but our children are literally watching how we live and how we apply the truth in our lives. If you don't have kids, let me say it this way. Your unbelieving and unmature friends are watching how you live your life. And not at all that we should live in such a way where we're trying to impress people and not that we're trying to live to please people, but we must understand that the text is challenging us that we must do the things that God has called us to do while we are waiting patiently. Verse 7 tells us to wait patiently, but verse 8 tells us that we need to have our hearts established while we wait. In Greek, that word that we translate established means to be strengthened or to make firm. In order to have patience, you must learn to be strengthened in your heart. It's the truth that a weak heart will not last in a spiritual battle. Many of us find ourselves in the midst of this spiritual trial, and while we are, while it's one thing to be in, a, in the midst of a spiritual trial, it's another thing to have a weak heart in the midst of the spiritual trial. I want you to stop for a second. I want you to think about this past week, okay? Think about just your calendar of events. How many people can say that this past week, well, let me just not even, I, I want to ask the question, but I don't want to be accusatory with my question. Let me say it this way. What did you do personally this week to strengthen your heart spiritually? Say it again. This week. What did you do personally 
to strengthen your heart spiritually. I know you spent some time getting acclimated back to school. I know there's a lot of folks who watched all three of the episodes of Surviving R. Kelly. You watched The Bachelor. You watched This Is Us. You watched The Voice. You uh, watched the stock market because you're concerned about your 401k. But here's the, here's the question. What do we do this week? Independent of 295 Talisy Road, what do we do this week to help our hearts be encouraged and be strengthened? But Romans 1.11 simply says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I love Romans 1.11 because it, it really does fly against the consumer culture of, of church today. When Paul approached church, the mindset was not, what am I getting out of this? It wasn't, do I like the building, or do I like the service time, or do I like the music, or do they have coffee, or can I wear comfortable clothes? I love that Paul is reminding us that when we approach church, we should approach it with the mindset that I am making a deposit. Not just financially, but I'm coming to encourage someone else. Romans 1.11 tells us that, that we should come to this assembly, this solemn, this holy assembly with the mindset of, I'm coming to encourage and strengthen someone else's heart. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but this morning, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I, I'm so thankful um, to be able to share the message with you this morning. But, but this morning, when you came, who came with the mindset of, I'm coming to Calvary today to strengthen somebody else. I'm coming to Calvary today to invest in somebody else. I'm coming to Calvary today to bless somebody else. I'm coming to Calvary because I believe God has an appointment for me to bless someone else. I, I hope that, and, and you, you can feel like this is guilting you or not, but I hope and pray that when you come to this church or any church, I hope that's your mindset. When, when you're considering missing church, when you're considering doing something different, I hope that, that Romans 1.11 just, just is imprinted on your heart, that, that you need to, to be here, not for you, but you need to be here for someone else. When I'm tired, when I have a late Saturday night, when I have a long Monday morning or waiting, I hope that we know that someone in the body needs our encouragement, and that's why we come. Also, too, I hope to see you Wednesday night. You know why I want to see you Wednesday night? I want to see you Wednesday night because I want you to be strengthening your heart. And I want you to come Wednesday night because I want you to help strengthen other people in their heart. When the women have their, they're having a retreat coming up in February, I hope you go to the retreat. You know why? Because I want you to be strengthening your heart. And I want you to be committed to strengthening somebody else's heart. When the men get together, you know why I want you to come? I want you to be strengthening your heart. I want you to be committed to strengthening somebody's heart. I want you to come this afternoon. You know why? I want you to be strengthened in your heart, and I want you to be committed to helping strengthen someone else's heart. When we go out and do evangelism, you know why I want you to come? I want you to be strengthened in your heart, and I want you to be willing to strengthen someone else's heart. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions 
For you yourselves know that we were, dis- we were destined for this. We-, we come together because, man, we want people to get stronger, right? Like as a pastor, like what, what, what fires me up, what gets me excited, what gets me motivated, that, that, that gets me like over the moon excited is when I see you growing your faith. When I see you getting stronger, when I see you making steps, when I see you developing as a believer, when I see you making uh, your faith serious, I want us to be willing to come together because we want to see people strengthen in their faith. So first, we see we are encouraged to wait. Secondly, we are encouraged to work. And then lastly, we are encouraged uh, to witness. Verse 10 says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of their steadfastness of Job, of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Um, We've got to remember the context. This is the Jewish audience who would have heard um, this passage, and immediately their thoughts would have gone back to all of the Old Testament prophets. Um, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used many of the Old Testament prophets as examples of how we can have victory in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. Um, it's, it's true that many of us would, would think that if God really loves us and God really cares for us, then God will give me an exit from the suffering and the hard times. But it is true that the scriptures give us plenty of examples of people who went through hard times and, 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 and discouraging seasons whose faith was increased. I, I don't have time to go through all of them, but if you think that God should just always save you from the trial, I want you to consider the life of Joseph. Did God save Joseph from the pit in the prison, or did God save him through it, right? You think about David. Did God save him from having to face Goliath, or did God save him through facing Goliath? You think about Noah. Did God save Noah from the flood, or did God save him through through the flood? Think about Jesus. Did God save him from the cross, or did he save us through the cross? You think about all of the Old Testament characters. They, they were willing to wait on God. They were willing to work for God. But I love it because they were also willing to witness for God. In the midst of their trials, they talked about God more. In the midst of their trials, they were willing to make a greater statement about their faith and commitment in Christ. Well, one of the things that we can do when we go through our, a hard season or a hard trial is we can speak the name of the Lord even more often. We can share the gospel even more often. Verse 11 continues and it says that, have you heard of the endurance of Job? Job is a very familiar passage or a very familiar character in the scriptures. I would encourage you to go back and read it. There are over 40 chapters in the book of Job, Um, but his his story or his letter can be divided into three essential uh, sections. The first uh, section is his distress, Job's distress. He lost his health, he lost his family, he lost his wealth, and his wife said life got so bad that he, she said you should just curse God and die. The Bible says he was a righteous man, yet he lost it all. Second part of it is Job's defense. He is upset with God. He is angry with the Lord. He is frustrated with God, and he is honest and real about his frustration. I love it because a lot of times in our heart we're frustrated with God, but we don't let it come out of our mouth. It's okay. If you are frustrated with God, you need to just talk to God about it. 
Job is willing to talk to God about it. And at the end, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He was real, but he also placed his faith in the Lord. So you have Job's distress, Job's defense, but lastly, you have Job's deliverance. I want to read verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter number 42. Job 42, verse 1 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is, who is this that hides, uh, hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, the things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Job is essentially saying is, God, I can't figure you out. He says, I'm trying to figure you out and I'm about to lose my mind. But he says, God, your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Verse 4 says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He says, I have heard about you, but now I see you for myself. He says, I've been to church and I heard pastors preaching about you and I heard Christian songs and I heard about Christian movies, Christian TV shows. But he says, now I see the Lord for myself. Here's the truth. God will allow you to go through the trials of life so that you can see God for yourself. Yes, it's great. It's great to hear about David and Goliath. It's great to hear about Daniel and the lions. And it's great to hear about Peter walking on the water. But here is what's better. For you to be able to have faith and know God for yourself. God wants you to be able to have a testimony. And God wants you to be able to have a personal testimony that is just not simply piggyback on somebody else. Verse 5, Job had a new and clearer view of God. But listen to what he says in verse 6. It says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Up until this point, Job has only said good things about himself. For the majority of the book, he has shared about how he had lived right, and he speaks about how he deserved better from God. But after he had a new view of God, after he clearly saw God for himself, he had a new view of himself. The truth is, when we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly. Job could not see himself clearly until he could see God clearly. Same is true for us. Until you personally see God clearly, then you will never see yourself clearly. Until we see God clearly, we will always compare ourselves to others. We will always think, I'm not that bad. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not raping anybody. I'm not murdering anybody. We will always play the comparison game because our flesh will have us think, well, such and such is worse off than me. If my, if my opinion and my perspective is focused on other people, then I'm always going to be good because I will always be able to find someone who is worse off than me. But on, on the other side, when I, when I have an accurate view of God, that's why we preach the scriptures, Right? We, we preach through the scriptures because it's not that we're, we're uncreative and we don't have anything to say. Well, really, we don't have anything to say. But we preach the scriptures because the more we preach God's word, the more you clearly see God. And the more you clearly see God, the more you will clearly see yourself. Amen. When we look at the text, I, 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 love, I love the story of Job, but a lot of times we, um, we talk about his life and we talk about the end of his life, you know. 
Job got double for his trouble. When he died, he had more vehicles and more cattle and more resources and more wealth. And we, we focus on the end of his life, right? We, we, we preach that thing hard. Like, if you just hold on, God's going to bless you. If you just hold on, God's going to give it to you. But the reality of it is, if you look at the text, the key to Job is not that he got more at the end of his life. The key to Job is at the end of his life, he saw God for who God really was, and he saw himself for who he really was. And because God could trust him, God gave him more, right? It's not about just going through the hard times. It's about whether or not God can trust you. The passage ends with, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Essentially, James is addressing the reality that when you are going through a trials and temptations, you will say anything to get out of it. These are all what I'm about to say, all things I've done, right? How many times have we been pulled over by the police? Knowing you speed, knowing you speed, knowing that you are breaking the law. And as the police officer comes up to the car, how many of us have said, Lord, if you just get me out of this one? Lord, I promise you, Lord, I will never speed again, Lord. Lord, I'm going to follow these rules. Get let out the ticket. Maybe a day or two goes by. Then you're back speeding, right? How many of us have said, Lord, if you just, Lord, if you just give me the promotion, Lord, if you just let me get this job, Lord, I'm going to come to church every Sunday, Lord, I'm going to tithe, Lord, I'm going to do everything right, Lord, just give me the job, Lord. We get the job. And we forget about the oath, right? How many of us have said, Lord, if you just, if you just let me, uh, if you just let me talk to this person, if you let me marry this person, if you let me be in a relationship with this person, Lord, I'm going to do right. Then we marry the person and then we are not as excited, not as loving, not as thankful for what God has given us. It's so easy for us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of those hard moments to just say anything to get ourselves out of the situation. And here's the truth. There, there are right things that we can say to God. I got to stop right here because I'm done. But next week, when we continue the passage, rather than just giving empty words, rather than just giving words that have no meaning or no purpose, we see that God can, can receive, instead of empty promises, we can give God faithful prayers to change our lives. Uh, ben, y'all can come on back up. We have three points of application today, and I think they're very, very simple and very, very practical, right? First point of application that we need to see is, as believers, we should never run from hard times. As a, as a believer, we got to understand that God has appointed us to hard times. And when God allows me to go through hard times, he hasn't left me, he hasn't forsaken me. It's not that he doesn't care about me, but God wants me to be patient. He wants me to bear up under, and rather than running from the hard times, God wants me to stay in the midst of the hard times. Satan would have me think that it's easier to run away. A lot, of my, a lot of areas of life, it's easier to just run, it's easier to just make an excuse, but I want to challenge you, don't run from hard times. But secondly, I want to challenge you, don't, don't run from the hard work. Yes, as believers, you cannot save yourself by your works. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. There is nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. There is nothing that you could say to God 
that will communicate to the Lord that you should be let into heaven based upon anything that you have done or not done. That is true, but the other side of that is this. The reason why we are here is to work. God has saved us for work. God has saved us so that we can be instruments in his hand. So no matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, single, married, young, old, student, not a student, does not matter. If you have breath in your body, there's work for you to do. And yes, think about the farmer. We got to wait on the rain. There's certain things that you and I will never be able to do. But there are some things we can do. I can till that ground. I can sow those seeds. I don't know what that looks like for your life personally, but even this week, I want, you to, I want to challenge you to ask God the question, Lord, am I doing what you're calling me to do in this specific area of my life? Yeah, I may be good in terms of my devotional life, but how am I with my attitude? How am I with my words? How am I with being a good steward of my resources? How am I with loving people who are hard to love? I want us to be challenged to do the work that God has called us to do. And lastly, yes, we need to not run from hard times. Yes, we don't need to run from hard work. But thirdly, we don't need to run from the hard opportunities. God blesses us with opportunities. And when God allows us to go through those opportunities, it's really to mold us and to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for allowing us to be in your presence. Lord, as we prepare for this time of communion and as the ushers come forward now, God, I pray that we would take this as an opportunity to prepare our hearts. God, please search our hearts. God, show us the areas in our life that need to be changed, that need to be molded, that need to be shaped. God, you tell us in your word that we are not to enter into this time unadvisedly. We are not to ever um, take this if we are not a part of the covenant community. God, so even now I would say, if you are not a believer, I would encourage you to abstain from this time. But if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to search your heart and to confess sin. God, lead us and guide us in this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.